up with good morning. Oh, wait, it is not morning, it is evening. And that is not because I'm just so witty and funny that I'm like, oh, that'll get everybody laughing and everybody off on a good start. Ha ha, he's got a sense of humor, we can appreciate him. But it's just because I'm so used to saying good morning whenever I preach that I just imagine it to be morning. But I guess it's morning somewhere usually in the world, so that's okay. Um, I talked to Matt before I, uh, obviously, before I didn't just know to show up here just intuitively. And um, he said we've been going through Luke here, the the Gospel of Luke here at this church. Um, And today I would like to take you back a few books uh, to the end of Matthew, um, to the Great Commission. The very last chapter of Matthew, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. This is, uh, Matthew is my favorite gospel. I mean, I, I guess everybody's got a favorite book in the Bible. Matthew is definitely my favorite book, and being my favorite book, it's also my favorite gospel. We like to split things up. Favorite epistles, favorite gospel, uh, favorite prophet, you know, whatever, favorite poetry. Matthew is definitely my favorite book out of them all. I'm a huge fan of Matthew. Um, his name, it's, it's very, his name, Matthew, as it's translated in English, uh, very similar to the Greek word for disciple. And it's, it's no coincidence, I think, that his book is like the disciple book. You know, his gospel is like the disciple gospel. Um, this Great Commission, as it's come to be known throughout Christian tradition, is rendered a couple of different ways in the Bible. You have it being rendered, I think, at the book of Luke, as this gospel of repentance will be preached to all the world and then the end will come. Uh, Mark says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But Matthew here, he says, go into all the, closes it out, go into all the world, uh, make disciples, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And I'm going to ignore that part because that is like the most covered way of preaching the Great Commission. And instead, I'm going to be focusing uh, heavily on verses 16 and 17. So, surprise, it's not what you thought when I said the Great Commission. I tricked you. So, um, if you're able and you're willing, and don't feel compelled if you don't want to, uh, but I would ask that you stand in the honor of the reading of the Word of God. Isn't that great? Don't feel compelled to stand, but to honor God's Word, if you're willing, just please stand. I'm just giving you an out, just in case. Beginning in verse 16 of chapter 28. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You may be seated. Is that, that's a funny picture in my mind when for the first, I don't know, 24 years of my life, every time I read this passage, and I had read it often, and you hear it often, we get to verse 16 and 17, and 17 says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, 
That's a standard reaction when people see Jesus in the Bible, right? They worship him, especially this resurrected Jesus. This is not Jesus the carpenter's son. This is not Jesus the supposed illegitimate child of Mary. This is Jesus whom was crucified just a couple days ago, you know, like four or five days ago at this point. He rose on the third day. Oh, he's back from the dead. People see him and they worship him. But then the next part, but some were doubtful. It's pretty much how... This verse in every translation goes, some were doubtful, some doubted. And in my mind, when I read this, here's the picture that I get. The disciples or that I got when I read in the past, here's, this is the picture that I got in my mind. Here come the disciples. They're coming to the mountain which Jesus had designated. He's risen. He's appeared to them previously in the closed room. He said, hey, Come to the mountain in Galilee that I told you to come to. What mountain is that? I don't know, but it was the one that he had designated, and they knew, and so they went. And they see him, and they're like, oh, praise Jesus, some of them, and worshiping Jesus somehow as they're walking along. And then others, though, are like, is that Jesus? I do not know if that is really Jesus. Maybe, this, maybe John is worshiping, but Peter's like, I don't know, man. Or Matthew is like, I'm not sure if that's Jesus or not. It could be Steve. But I don't think that that is the kind of doubtful, and I, I firmly believe that's not the kind of doubting that they were. You know, we, we, get a, we get traditions that get attached to words in Christianity. And doubting, I think, is most closely associated with, like, doubting Thomas, right? We've heard doubting Thomas, and unless you know, Jesus shows up in the middle of them. They're, they're hanging out in, like, a locked-in room in a basement somewhere. Suddenly there's Jesus, just... He appears. They all freak out. He tells them, calm down. And then you have Thomas with the gall to say, listen, you look like the man, right? You sound like the man. But unless I can put, like, touch the wounds, I just don't think you're him. And Jesus is like, yo, put your finger in my hand. If that doesn't satisfy you, take your whole hand and put it in my side. Don't you remember, Thomas? I don't actually, I don't think that you were there, Thomas, but just in case you heard, I got crucified, and they stabbed me in the side with a lance, and I died, and here's the wounds. Are you satisfied now? And, you know, Thomas was satisfied. But I, I think that's a special kind of doubting. I think that's the, or a specific kind of doubting. It's not really special. I think that's a, like an intellectual doubting, like the kind of doubting that Jesus says in Matthew if you have faith, then do not doubt, and say to this mountain, be removed from me and be cast into the sea, it'll do so. Right? It's that kind of doubting. Then we have another kind of doubting. And if you can like, zoom in to the text and, and go back behind the English, you'll find that there are actually two different words. This is a doubting that is used two times in the New Testament, both by Matthew. I think for a, a better picture of that, we should turn, if you will, to Matthew 14, beginning in verse 30. And we'll see a very different, uh, very different picture, very different situation going on. This is, um, while you're turning there, yet another funny word picture that Matthew uses when I read it. It talks about Jesus walking on the water. And... Um, He, he walks, and he says that he intends to pass them by. Maybe this isn't in Matthew. That was poor preparation on my part. But it has a kind of like the picture of like Jesus trotting by him, but I think it's about him causing his glory to pass over them. 
But here in verse 30, the very famous scene of Peter saying, Jesus, if it's really you, command me to walk on the water to you, and I'll come out. And Jesus is like, come on, Peter. So Peter hops out of the water, and in verse 30, it says, Seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and saved him. And he said to him, you of little faith, that famous beloved phrase that Jesus has for everybody. I think it's a term of endearment for us, really. You of little faith, why did you doubt? And we know that Peter did not question whether or not it was Jesus. He said, if it's you, Lord, I'll come to you. Jesus said, come on. And what do... Jesus' sheep do when they hear his voice. They know him and they follow him, right? And Peter knows it's Jesus. He knows his voice. He follows Jesus out onto the waves. And it's scary and it's terrifying. All logic would say that if you step in water of any level of calmness, if it's calm, if it's you know, windy and stormy, irrespective of what kind of water it is, if you try to walk on water, you will sink. That's what logic would dictate. But Peter's love for his Lord overwhelms momentarily his sense of logic. Out he goes on the water. I don't think it's very much like standing right here because there's wind and waves. So he's up and he's down and the wind is tossing him around. And what happens? That rhymes. He becomes afraid. He sees the winds and the waves and he becomes afraid. And then he starts sinking. And Jesus' word for what he did was doubt. Why did you doubt? He didn't doubt who Jesus was as a person. He doubted whether or not he was safe with Christ. He, when he looked and he saw Jesus amidst the turmoil, he doubted whether Jesus could keep him safe. Whether he was okay to just be abandoned and wholly rest on the goodness of Christ to save him and preserve his life. And it's a fair doubt, you know. Peter's a guy, just like us. We have insecurities and weaknesses. Peter is a fisherman. Peter spent a lot of time on the sea. He knows what happens to people who are capsized in a storm. It's fair. It's fair of him to be afraid. It's not not unreasonable. But that's what he was doubting. I think Matthew gave us that instance and used that word so that he could show us how they were feeling when they met the resurrected Jesus. So now let's, let's reread that. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then there's a period. And I would like to imagine, given a little bit of creative interpretation, that if Jesus and I had the same sense of humor, and we know that Christ had a sense of humor, we know that Christ had a favorite food, we know that Christ didn't like certain days of the week because he was human. So if he had a sense of humor like mine, which he may have, he may not, maybe that's me being too prideful, I would like to imagine that there was a long, dramatic pause. All authority has been given to me on heaven In heaven and on earth. Long, dramatic pause. And then a go. And a long, dramatic pause. And make disciples in all the earth. Baptizing all the people. Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. 
how terrifying it would be to be those disciples and encounter Jesus. Why? Why would it be terrifying? I'm saying it's terrifying, but why would it be terrifying? Well, a chapter or two ago, Jesus is arrested. And it's uh, verse, what, like 26? Yes, Matthew 26. My Bible says, Jesus' betrayal and arrest. Verse 56 of chapter 26 has Jesus saying, all of this is taking place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. The crowds coming out to seize him by night. Judas's betrayal, that son of perdition as he's named. The reason why you don't have any friends named Judas. The reason why there's no one with the surname Iscariot. Uh, there's a few people, but they're intentionally antagonistic about naming their child Judas or changing their last name to Iscariot. They, you know, they hate Jesus and hate Christians. and Why not, right? I mean, if you got the freedom, someone's going to do it. But that's why most of us don't know anyone named Judas. That's why most of us don't know anyone named Iscariot. It's kind of like you don't know very many Benedicts. In fact, pretty much the only Benedict that we know aside from eggs is Benedict Cumberbatch. What is he? He's English. Well, of course he's going to be named Benedict, right? That guy was a hero or tried to be a hero for England. Um, but all of this taking place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets... And then all the disciples left him and fled. All. Every single disciple. Peter, who said, I would rather die than betray you, than abandon you. Peter fled. Matthew, who was a tax collector earlier in his life, and nobody wanted to be his friend but other terrible crooks and thieves, and he was so far out of God's word and God's will and God's covenant people. He was a traitor to his Jewish brothers, traitor to his countrymen. Matthew, who was rescued out of that by Jesus, picked up and put into communion with the Son of God, left him and fled. Everyone. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? The self-styled disciple whom Jesus loved, who gave us the loving gospel, the gospel of John, probably even the book of Revelation and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I mean, it just says John. It could have been a different John. John was a pretty popular name, especially because of how popular John became. But tradition tells us that it was John who wrote those books. He fled. And here's the guy whom Jesus loved. He doesn't call himself that disciple who loved Jesus. He calls himself that disciple that Jesus loved. And he flees. And he leaves them. And so Jesus is arrested. This man whom they called their king their Lord and their God, Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, flees. I mean, there is a title in ancient times, this Son of God title. And it was attributed to multiple people, um, not as like a deity worship kind of thing, but like Alexander the Great kind of had the title of Son of God kind of bestowed on him. Why? Because he conquered like half the world, right? So this is honorific title. But here Peter is saying, you're the Christ. You're God's anointed king. That's what Christ means. You're the son of the living God. That's not just son of God. That's not just powerful ruler. You're the son of the one true living God. We know who you are. Jesus is like, Peter, you're the rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. I mean, that's quite a statement, right? Peter the rock flees. He leaves Christ. He deserts him. Peter the Zealot leaves, deserts Christ. 
I mean, we really don't know anything about the other Peter except that he was a zealot. He's like the exact opposite of Matthew. It tells us that Christ and God favors diversity and spice in his congregation, right? We've got Matthew who is a sellout to Rome and collecting taxes for Rome. Boo, hiss. And we've got Peter who is a zealot and is basically a terrorist and like fighting for Israel by robbing caravans and killing people. Boo, hiss, right? He flees. Everyone flees. And then what happens? Peter's drug before the, not Peter, Jesus is drug before the Sanhedrin. Somehow Peter tags along and is outside listening. Maybe John was there too. And um, Jesus is tried for hours and hours and they bring in people and they, they, testimony after testimony after testimony, and they can't get anything to line up. And these Pharisees and the Sanhedrin who are so strict to God's law, which says you can only put someone to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses, finally get two witnesses who said, hey, he said that he could tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's blasphemy. To which the high priest is like, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us whether or not you're the Christ. And Jesus is like, well, if you're calling my dad into the equation, I tell you, you will see the Son of Man from here on coming at the right hand of power with great glory. What further need of a trial have we? He has blasphemed, the high priest says, as he rips his garments, right? It's expensive, sacred clothing, and he just dramatically shreds it. I hate drama. I hate it so much. It's so dumb. It's always been dumb. It's always been unnecessary. And here we have Caiaphas just ripping his clothes. Like a prehistoric, not prehistoric, but like a B.C. Hulk Hogan or something. And none of the disciples were there to defend Jesus. Then we have him sent to Pontius Pilate. Christ doesn't say a word. Pontius Pilate doesn't want to start a riot, so he sends him to Herod. Herod thinks this is like the best thing ever. But Jesus bores him because he's not saying a word. So he sends him back to Pontius Pilate. Despite his best efforts, there's a riot forming. So what does he do? Washes his hands. Everyone calls out his blood be on us and our children. They beat him. They put a robe, a mocking kingly robe, and give him a crown and a scepter. All these things a king should have. None of his disciples were there to defend him. None of his disciples were there to help him. Maybe John was with his mother. The closest we get to the disciples standing up for Jesus is John comforting Mary at the cross. And this is the disciple whom Jesus loved, because even though John didn't open his mouth in Christ's defense, even though John didn't throw himself in front of those Roman guards as they were flailing the flesh off the back of Christ, for his king, whom he said that he served and he loved, there he is with his mother, and Christ is appreciative of that, as we all would be, for someone to be comforting our mother if we were being murdered in front of our eyes, something that no one should ever have to see or witness. But still no defense. Where were the other ten? Judas has killed himself at this point, but fat lot of good Judas did. I mean, he's the reason that we're in this predicament to begin with. But no one else. Everyone has been dispersed. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, the prophet says. And that is exactly what happened. None of those sheep came to defend their shepherd. And those sheep were telling themselves, we're the sheep. It's not our job to defend the shepherd. 
It's the shepherd's job to defend us. But I guess this was a false shepherd. After all, isn't anyone who dies on a tree cursed? And here, Jesus died on a tree. Doesn't the soul that sin, it shall die? Didn't the prophet say that? Well, Jesus is dead. I guess he sinned. guess he was a sinner like us. So off they go, hiding back to wherever the bugs crawl when the light comes on, back to wherever the rat goes when the cat comes in the room. Rome has scared them. And then up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes, as the song says. He arose the victor from the dark domain, and he rules forever, it says, and I'll stop. With a mighty triumph o'er his foes. Now, that's not Scripture, right? It's not a quote from Scripture, but it's true. Jesus rose a conquering king. He drew in breath, and with that breath defeated death in the kingdom of death. He rolled back the stone, the light comes in the tomb, and suddenly the light of the world is back in the world. And if you're in the kingdom of darkness, if you are made up of darkness, you don't want the sun, S-U-N hyphen S-O-N, the sun squared standing in front of you because it's going to completely annihilate you. And here Jesus is. And suddenly these 11 guys who were so on Jesus' side, so in his corner of the fight just a few days ago, for years they were, for two and a half, three years they were with him, abandoned him, jumped ship in their hearts back to the kingdom of darkness, and suddenly Jesus is standing in front of them. Now they're doubtful. They doubt their safety, and that's a fair doubt. They see the wind and the waves of the resurrected Son of God before them, and they are terrified, and they should be. Woe is me, Isaiah says, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I'm around a people of unclean lips too. But woe is me. Undoubtedly, that's what they were thinking. Woe, woe is me. They doubted if their head would remain attached to their shoulders when they kneeled before him, is what they doubted. They doubted if their lungs would be continuing to be able to breathe in oxygen. After all, didn't Job say that when God closes his fist, he can draw all breath to him out of the, life, out of the lungs of every living thing? They're facing him, and he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is the epitome of both their greatest hopes Jesus told them he was going to die and be resurrected, and that's what they wanted to happen, but also their greatest fears. Man, they had to be conflicted right now. And every time that Jesus had said something scary, I'm sure it was being called to mind. Just a few chapters before, I don't know, 13 or something, I wrote it down somewhere, but I didn't bring it with me. He said, don't Fear him who has the ability to kill you, but not the soul. But instead, who should you fear? Him who can kill you and then cast your soul into hell for eternity. Well, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, says Christ. I think that includes the authority to strike you down in the body and cast your soul into hell. Oh, that's terrifying. No man putting his hand to the plow... And then looking back is fit for the kingdom, says the king. 
What did they do? They had their hands to the, to the plow, hardcore. They left father and mother and brother and sons for his sake. And Jesus promised them way more in rewards. When Peter said, Jesus, we've left everyone. What do we have to show for it? He says, there's no one who's left anything that won't be rewarded way more in the kingdom. They were on the team. And they look back, and they abandon him, and they are terrified. They remembered when he said those scary words. Perhaps they don't remember when he told them about a father who has two sons. One of them decides that it's time to go and live it up in the city. And so he goes and he requests his inheritance, which is the equivalent of saying, Father, you're dead to me. I'm ready for you to die. I would like for you to give me what you said you would give me when you pass on so that I can go and enjoy my life free from you. And the father gives it to his son and he goes and he wastes it. And he ruins his life. He contracts who knows what in terms of diseases. He sells everything he has. He's destitute, out of money, out of friends. He didn't have true friends, but he rented the friends that he had with his money and his wealth, figuratively. For the children that take everything literally right now, he didn't actually go to a store and rent his friends, but, you know, they just only liked him for his money and his stuff. And it runs out, and his life is ruined. And he goes and he works for a pig farmer, which is the picture of uncleanliness to a Jew. He begins to desire the food that the pigs are eating. This thing that Jews were not allowed to eat, period. This thing that was so hated, this animal so detested, never spoken of in a good way. He said, I'm so hungry I have to eat with them, I have to dine with them. He became swine. He thought of his dad, man, if I go home, his servants have have it better than this. Maybe he'll take me back as a slave. And as Jesus is telling the story, the son gets home, and we all know the end of the story. This is not new information. The father sees him and takes off running down the road to catch him. Probably the son was thinking, and everyone was thinking as Jesus was telling this, the dad's got a knife, and he's going to go shank his son and put his family back in honor. But no, he doesn't have a knife. He doesn't have a sword. He doesn't have an axe. He doesn't have an army coming with him to carry off his son to judgment and throw him in debtor's prison to stone him, which, after all, isn't that the thing to do? The book of Leviticus tells us, isn't that what we should do with our children who curse us? You have a son who curses his father and mother, breaks the fifth commandment, or the fourth commandment, Fifth commandment, fifth commandment, sorry. Breaks the fifth commandment. What's the, what's the penalty for that? Death. He who curses father and mother should be put to death. Everyone listening to this parable is thinking, oh yeah, the dad's about to, to put in work. And what's he do? He hugs him, he embraces him, he puts a ring on his finger, he kills the fatted calf, he tells his other son to shut up and quit being so prideful, and he welcomes him back. They don't remember that parable. They don't remember the parable of the man who found a pearl or a treasure in a field and covered it back up and then sold everything that he had so that he could buy that field and own the treasure. We thought about that parable before. Have we thought about how 
It doesn't make sense for us. If you're out in the field and no one sees you find the treasure, who cares? Take the treasure, keep what you have, and now you've got double. You finders keepers. But that's what Christ did with us. He purchased us back without stealing us unlawfully. He paid for our crimes so that our sins would be dealt with. He sold everything that he had, his life, to purchase us back. But they don't remember that. They didn't understand that. Right now they just see the resurrected king and they're terrified. And if you will allow me some, you know, a means of alliteration, they were expecting to be condemned. But what they received was commission. They were expecting execution. What they received was exaltation. It just works. I didn't try to alliterate. I normally don't like that. But it sure is handy and easy to remember, so there you go. They were expecting to be cast down, to be made low. They were hoping to be made neutral. They were hoping that he would just be like, bygones are bygones. I'm not going to kill you, but go away from me. Disperse into all the world and I never want to see you again. And that would have been more than they deserved, right? But what happens? Christ tells them to go away from here. But to carry His name into the world and to make disciples and to to teach them. And suddenly they remember that high priestly prayer that uh, John records for us towards the end of his gospel, when Christ was saying, I don't just pray this for them right now, but for those who will believe by their testimony. And 2,000 or so years later, here I stand, and here we sit. Here we have our religion with our stained glass windows, and our steeples, and our cross with our young lady who can just kill it on the piano. Just just killing it. Because of this command. So what is the application? What does this mean? Essentially, for however long I've been up here, which may be way too long, I did not look at what time I started, I have just taken the morning to tell you that Jesus loves you. This is not new information to you. Maybe this is a new way of understanding his love. Because haven't we done the same thing that these disciples have? Didn't we start following Jesus? And didn't we turn away from him after all sorts of filth and nonsense and pride? Didn't we trade in the love that he showed for us for our arrogance and our ability to understand everything and our hatred for those who are different from us? and our selfishness to get everything that we deserve, only to be welcomed right back when we come to the cross. Only to be forgiven when we bow in prayer, never to be cast out. This is the picture of we who err as Christians when we come back to Christ. There is a time to be afraid of Christ. There is a time to be Afraid of Him who can destroy the body and the soul. If you are a Christian, now is not that time. If you are a Christian, if you follow after God, 
If you seek to love Him, if He has called you to Himself like He called these disciples to Himself, if you have obeyed that call, you face a God, you face a King who has a face, number one, not a spirit, not a statue. You face a man with a face, but that face is using its muscles and its skin to smile at you. And that face understands that you hate Mondays. And that face understands how weak you are when the chocolate cake comes by. That face understands the loneliness that you feel at night when you question, why doesn't anybody love me? That face understands when people pick on you at school and it smiles. And it's not a grimace and it's not a grin that is waiting for you to fail so that He can judge you. It is a smiling face of your brother. It is a smiling face of your Father who won't ever cast you out. Who won't ever turn His cold shoulder on you. You face the smiling face of God if you are a Christian. That's what we invite people into when we preach the Gospel. When we go to Peru, to the Amazon, that's the God that we invite them to come experience. But we also tell them that the converse is true. If you won't come to Him when He calls you, if you will not obey Him when He says, worship me, and bask in the glow of His smiling face, you face the One who has the authority to destroy both the body and the soul. You face the One who is the judge. You face the angered king who was beaten and mocked and who has promised revenge. You face that man who heard the, the crowds declare his blood be on us, us, his blood be on us and our children. That's what you face if you turn away, if you reject the call. Such a strange dichotomy on a, white, on a knife's edge that we walk. We have to keep balance. We can't remember only that Christ is our judge and our king. We have to remember that Christ is our brother and that He loves us and He's our friend. That Christ is our Father, our everlasting Father. That the government rests on His shoulders. That He's the Prince of Peace. That He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Such a strange knife's edge we walk as Christians if we want to be faithful. And I think we have that dichotomy perfectly illustrated here at the end of Matthew. And so what is the response? that we should have to this greeting of Christ in the midst of our diving. It's to go. It's to go into all the world. It's to go into your place of work, into your school, into your local church, into this community. And it's to make disciples. It's to teach them. Teach your children. Teach your children's friends. Kids, teach your friends. Teach yourselves to obey everything that Christ commanded It's for us to baptize them into the covenant of God's people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's to remember that in the midst of that, in the midst of that going and that teaching and that baptizing, that we're not alone. Not only do we have each other for a short time before we disperse, either through death or through circumstances, all these disciples went out on their own ways. But not only do we have each other, ultimately, we have Him. I am with you 
always, even to the end of the age, even till the sun expands past the orbit of Jupiter and evaporates everything before it, even until the stars die out because they run out of fuel, even until a comet smashes into the earth and boils the sea, He's with us. Even until the atoms in the universe lose their magnetic ability to hold together, He's with us. Even until the next politician gets elected in our country that we just really didn't want to get elected, He's with us. Even until you don't get a raise at work when you desperately need it to feed your family and put your kids through college, He's with us. Even when you lose your job, He's with us. Even when no one wants to be your boyfriend or your girlfriend, He's with us. To the end of the age, in the midst of our going. And He's with us and He smiles. And I thank God for His smiling face. Because we don't deserve it. I'll pray and we'll be finished. God, I thank You for the um, opportunity to come and preach Your Word. And Father, I pray, God, that You would uh, use it to accomplish the purposes which You want to accomplish. Father, thank you for your smiling face. Thank you for your invitation, God, for us to experience it as sons and daughters, brothers of Christ, sisters of Christ. Lord, would you never let us take it for granted. Would you go with us as we go? In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.